Welcome to the Hypergens Founders Podcast, the show where we explore the secrets behind brilliant minds running successful B2B companies. I'm your host, Alex, and we'll dive into conversations with inspiring founders each week. From garage startups to global enterprises, we uncover the stories of those who dare to turn their ideas into reality. Get ready for inspiration, insights, and secrets behind their success. If you're curious about how these visionaries are turning their million and billion dollars ideas into reality, then this podcast is for you. Stay tuned for engaging discussions on technology innovation and leadership. This is the Founders Podcast. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Founders Podcast. With me, we have co-founder and head of growth, Braden Young of Sendoso the leading sending platform that helps companies stand out by giving them new ways to engage with customers throughout the buyer's journey. Braden, welcome. Hi, good to be here. Very good to be here. Awesome. Good intro. Head of growth, <laughs> most Silicon Valley title ever, which doesn't mean anything. Like, head of growth. <laughs> I know, a man of everything, right? Man of everything. Yeah, okay. That's a good title. Let's start with this bold statement, right? What I saw on your website, cold emails are dead and ads are out and then direct mail is in. How did you guys come up with that? That's something right there. <laughs> so myself and my co-founder, we were both sales guys. I started as an SCR calling dentists, trying to get meetings. And then I went to an AE role and an enterprise AE role. So I was there for a long time. I did the email sequences like back before like any of the systems existed. We would do like massive mail merges. So we would send thousands of emails a day trying to get meetings. And the idea came from we started plugging in like e-gifts into our cold emails. Like, hey, I'll take my meeting and grow, grab money at Starbucks or you know whatever coffee shop. And it worked really well. And it was like one of those things where like we could stand out amongst all of the you know, messages you got back then. I would say today it's even gotten more extreme with the noise of emails and LinkedIn messages that are cold is just crazy. And I don't respond to any of them, but the ones that are different, the ones that are unique or the ones that are encompassed around like an actual campaign where there's not just an email, but there's an email and a LinkedIn message and a gift. And an e I think that's when it works now. And there's an actual reason for them reaching out. If there's not like a strategy as to why I'm trying to get in front of somebody, it's just a cold email. I would say it's not going to work because there's not a lot of phone calls or emails I get that are, I'm like, hey, for sure, I do want to spend money right now to buy your software. There has to be a bunch of stuff around it to really get someone's time, I would say. Awesome. And then I guess, how did you guys come up with the name Sendoso? So we call it Coffee Sender and originally because we sent coffee and then we started adding things to it. So we were like, hey, could we send physical things? Could we send things like gifts, like flowers and things like that? And we needed to send more than just coffee or we needed to send oh so much more than this coffee. So send oh so. That's not the true story. That's the story we like to tell. The true story is we wanted the name sender.com, but sender was like 50 grand to buy the domain. And we had $1,000 and Sendoso was like one of those like GoDaddy recommendations that was like, this is $9 to have for the year. So we we're like, that works. So we went with Sendoso for the name and had to make up stories around like why we called it that. Yeah. I feel like it's more unique, right? It stands out and it's... Um, the Oso? It's yeah. We knew we wanted a .com at least because we were like, okay, we'll start there. <laughs> I don't think it's necessary anymore, but seven years ago, I think that was like everything that ended in like IO and AI. And I guess what made you guys actually start the B2B SaaS business? So as I said, we, we started on the e-gift side, plugging those in the emails 
And it was a way to make beer money at the start. So we were like, let's like release this to our buddies and sales. It's getting us meetings. And it was the right time. And if anyone starts a company, it's like a lot of it, I think, has to do with time. And we started at, it was account-based marketing was like the phenomenon that was overtaking marketing and sales. So everyone wanted to be unique. So we had this product that was free called Coffee Center that we plugged. Basically, we built a widget that plugged into a Chrome app and you, you can plug in like an e-gift code to every email you sent. And it took off pretty quickly. Like it was a side job. The first week we released it and made like 60 grand. And we're like, oh, this might be something. This is actually like a really cool thing. And we kept building it on the side because we didn't want to leave our jobs. We weren't really sure if this would work or not. And then I remember like my company I was with, it's no longer around. My the CEO there was like, hey, I know you work on a side project. So I was so excited about it. And every salesperson at the company was using it. He was like, do you want to work here or do you want to work on that? And I was like, I'm having more fun there. So I left. So I was fired, if you will, left. And I called my co-founder, Chris, on the way out the door. And I was like, we got to make this work. We got to figure out what else we could have said besides coffee. So that was the start of it. And my wife at the time was like, you have six months to make it work, like to make no money and make it an actual company. And that was our timeline. And my co-founder joined me and we had six months to turn into a company. And that's when we switched the name from Copy Center to Sendoso and built it out, which was a fun journey. Like the very start of startups, I think is like the most fun, like when they're really small, because every dollar you make is really important. Yeah, I can attest that. I guess when you get that first customer, it's like that high that you get. Yeah. And then we never wanted to raise money. The, the, the thought was like, treat it as a lifestyle business. So for a long time, hey, this, we can live anywhere in the country. We can move to Valencia, Spain and hang out there for a while and just have the company run on its own. But we raised money pretty quickly because we needed it for building. And we raised a little more until we had a lot. And so that's one of the fun things. And then we learned that warehousing is very expensive. So I had to raise a good amount of money to make that work for us too. Awesome. And that first MVP, how did you guys build it out? Was it just you and your co-founder? Did you hire an agency or how did that go? Yeah, so it was me and my co-founder, and we're both non-technical, but we could wireframe at least. So we could wireframe it out, and we watched a ton of YouTube videos on like how to do a wireframe and like how to like actually work with engineers. And then engineering, we found on Upwork or Odesk in Pakistan. So they were in Lahore, Pakistan. We hired one guy out there. One guy quickly turned into 60 that were all out in Pakistan. It was a really great team. Like Those guys were amazing. They would build basically at night when we slept because we're out in California. In the morning, you wake up with a working product. The only problem was as they'd build it and as we were releasing it, if the product would go down in the middle of the day, it was down all day because they wouldn't wake up until 5 p.m. our time out in California. And so that was tough. We had to figure out as, okay, like we need to be able to get better at learning how the system works at the back end. But they built it. They're still with us today. Like those are the guys who'd spend a lot of time on the system still do a lot of the coding, et cetera, for us in Lahore. They're employees now. They all have equity, but they started out as contractors from Odesk. That's amazing. So you guys were outsourcing before it was actually cool <laughs> because that's one of the things we always tell companies and we're seeing more people do right now. It's like you have all this talent like outside the States. It's cheaper. They're actually as passionate, as talented as the talent there. So I think a lot more companies should be utilizing them. Yeah, they're awesome. So we did that in Lahore and then our go-to-market strategy we had built because Chris and I were pretty hacky salespeople. At night, we had a team in India that would crawl LinkedIn for our ICP as to what the perfect match was. We knew we wanted marketers, we knew we wanted salespeople. So they would crawl at finding people 
they would dump that into a program called Lead Ferret. They basically pull out email addresses. And then those would be dumped into called the YAM, another mail merge, because it was a sales loft and outreach were around, but they weren't really as big yeah. as they are now. And so we'd use the YAM to basically do a bunch of email campaigns all day. And we use a calendar link in there to set meetings. So I'd wake up in the morning with 20 demos, people sitting at themselves because like we were using that flow all night trying to get meetings. And that was when like there wasn't like the bombardment of cold emails we all get. And so it worked really well. And we attached e-gifts in the emails. So it was almost like a MVP of our product. We don't do the data side now, maybe someday, but like, it worked really well, like having e-gifts in there trying to get meetings and that's when we knew it worked as something that folks would probably want to buy. It's crazy. But what that was India. Rates? So we had Pakistan and India both working at night, which is fun. That's crazy. What was your hit rate like back then? Hit rate in terms of like deliverability or just like click and set a meeting? Sent emails to like a meeting perhaps. Set as man, maybe 2%, 3%. It wasn't great in terms of setting a meeting. But we sent a lot of emails. Like we would send like hundreds of thousands of emails from like different domains, from different, like yeah. we had a pretty well-built engine for it. We also like developed people on LinkedIn that weren't real people. And so we made up LinkedIn profiles. So when you would take a meeting, you would take it with like Doug and Doug would introduce me to run the demo, but Doug wasn't real. And so that's what you, you basically looked a little bigger than two people. I don't know if that really mattered as much as we thought it did, like the optics of it, but like it helped because you were sending emails from 15 different addresses and 15 different domains. And you weren't killing your domain. So you had some dose of the apps and the AI. So it's like that basically made it where you weren't crushing your Google results. Yeah, totally. Yeah, actually we do the same thing based on the type of setting they want to do. We also create multiple domains, multiple email accounts. Cause like you said, like... It will get banned by Google or Outlook or whatever. So it's just good to have backups either way. Yeah. I think when you're doing cold emails, we still do it today. Sometimes people, they want to see your product, but they want to have like just a way to go click around and have an actual demo mm -hmm. portal like they can do themselves and then take a demo. We didn't have a really good version of that because all the systems today that exist, like where you can do like walkthroughs weren't around. We made a ton of YouTube videos and people could just see a demo live like on YouTube and be like, hey, or not live, but see a demo for three minutes. And they liked it and they take a demo. And that worked out or we just give them a login and like they could click around and then they could take a demo to learn how it worked. And like that stuff, I think people don't use it enough today. Like I would love someone to be like, hey, take a demo of my system and they send me a login and then I can go click around for a while and then I could take a demo. That's that's how I'd love to buy. I feel like no one's really doing that. It'd be really cool if they did personally. I think that's kind of probably like the PLG model too. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people, like, they're looking for that direct conversion, pretty much getting that meeting. Uh, but you're right. And I guess we've personally sent links, people going to the website. But a lot of times we've seen them bounce and whatnot. I guess with your guys' like, current campaigns, like, are you sending them a product demo? I'm talking like in the past. So today what we do, so it's called Sendoso Express. So it's a free version of our mm -hmm. software. There's our software costs. And typically we have folks sign up there. Like when you go to our site, it's like okay. get started for free and you get a link and you can go click in. You can send e-gifts right away because it's easy to send out e-gifts and some physical things like bagels. And that tends to work out the best because someone can go in there, send stuff out. And then if there's multiple gates. Hey, I want to send branded stuff. Cool. Talk to a sales rep. I want to do more physical things. Talk to sales. So those are all the gates that work for us. I think that the nice part about it is just, there's people that go in there and just live in the free version. 
Like they just want us in e-gifts and like they just want us in like flowers every once in a while. That's great. And like, I think that they should be able to. I think too many companies, especially startups are trying to get like that enterprise deal. And I think that it's a good thing, but sometimes it's just, it takes too much time to get there. And it's better just to live in like the SMBs for a while and figure out what your product you know, needs and how it works. Mm -hmm. For enterprise accounts, I feel like it's also a good idea to let even individual SDRs and let's say AEs try out the product on their own. So like start from the bottom to build out to the top. Yeah, that changes your conversation, right? When you're talking to a high-level person, enterprise company, and you can point out that a bunch of SDRs at that company already use your product, that's a way different conversation than, hey, we'd love to get anyone at your company using our product. I think that the tops down and the bottom approach have to do both at the same time. I guess nowadays, and we talked about some unique target markets that you guys are after, but how did you identify your current target market, especially right now with what's happening with the world, spend going down, companies not hiring as much, not spending as much? Yeah. Tech was great. We're, I mean, tech was all we did for a long time. And then we had every once in a while, someone like non-tech would come in. Probably like a year and a half ago, we started adding like more like non-technical companies. We're like, hey, you know, like I'm sure everyone knows about like the house of cards. We're all you know using VC money to build this company. That's great, but I think that you have to step out of that, and this, which is what we did. And we started finding more like manufacturing companies, more finance companies, more like oil companies, car companies. So like if you're like a VP of marketing at an oil company or an insurance company, you're a great target for us because most likely you do a ton of gifting. You've done it for a very long time and you've never really tracked success metrics of sending somebody a gift because most people haven't. Most people send holiday gifts and once a year, this is because that's the way business has always been done. And they've never really tracked like what that does for them. And so those are like the best prospects for us right now. I love when I see like an insurance company close I've never heard of, but they happen to be a big company of a thousand people. Like those are like the best companies. They stay with you for a lot longer too. Yeah, because I also feel like you mentioned like a lot of these tech companies, like it's what we read on the news, like company A got funding, company B got purchased by someone or whatever. But a lot of times there's a lot of these regular businesses that nobody talks about, like in manufacturing insurance, how you mentioned, they're actually making a lot of money. They're really good businesses and they still need this type of a solution. So I guess like the biggest aha moment when they see your product, you say it's the tracking of what happens after they send out those gifts. Yeah. So I think if you're talking to them, they're always asked like, what's actually working, like, what's the attribution of the email versus the webinar versus the banner ad, whatever have you. But no one's really done this for gifting. So if I send somebody a digital e-gift, if I send somebody a physical mailer or a gift, Will that get them to convert to take the meetings? So that's never been like an input into a, a lot of CRMs until we came out. And that's huge for folks. So marketing, if you're reaching out like everything digitally, but you're doing nothing in their mailbox, then I think that you're missing out like on a huge segment of like, trying to get attention from that person. So that's for like top of funnel. If you're talking to like, CX or HR or something like that, like there's a whole nother mode of, like, hey, how can I build a relationship with somebody to get them where they're going to renew again. I think that gifting does a really good job there where you send things like not just like once from the deal closes, but every interaction, like there's an e-gift or there's a physical send or someone has a child and you send like a onesie with their logo on it. There's so many things you can do to basically get outside of the inbox and make it where it's cool gifts where when people think of your brand 
Or when they think of you as an individual, they're like, oh, like Braden's good to work with because he remembers things. And like all it is is an automation of sending out like e-gifts to like somebody's birthday or whatever have you. So that's what we tell folks is that's the best thing to do is try to get more unique and more personalized in their outreach. Awesome. And then I guess what makes you guys different from all the other uh, competitors in the market? Because right now there's a lot of gifting platforms out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, oh, there's a bunch of us do a lot of different things. I mean, like seven years ago or eight years ago, it was just us and one other. So now there's a lot of them. Uh, the biggest difference, which is like our, probably our biggest moat is when we were starting, we decided we wanted to own our own warehouse. And now we have five of them. And like the reason we did that was probably naive at the time, but like now it's become a big moat for us because we can control your brand. And so, you know, like we, the people that are our Sendoso employees are putting things in a box, they're making it customized, they're adding a handwritten note and they're sending it out. So basically like it's very secure. So no one you know sees what you're sending uh, at the same time, like we can get and change things as we need to. Uh, if you're an enterprise company, like you want to be secure. If you're an S&B client customer, like you want to have fast SLAs and get stuff out as fast as possible. Like we can do that because we own the facilities. Our competitors are all great. Like their approach has been different there. They use their parties for, for, for those things, which is just a different approach. Ours is a little more like, you know, Sendosa owns it. Uh, besides that, like we do more sending than any of them kind of, I think almost probably combine. And the reason we have this, is because we've been around the longest, I think, you know, a lot of them as they grow, will catch us. But the nice part about that is having kind of that first mover, uh, move for Sendoso is we have all this data as to like what works. And so what can you send to somebody to try to get a reaction? And like that mm -hmm. data we use in our platform. So we plugged in like an AI to basically recommend gifts. We can recommend content in the platform. So things like that help. And we leverage our own data to do that. We're only getting better as to what you can send to a CMO in Seattle. And so I think that with all the, you know, AI stuff on, you know, on the tech scene right now, I think that's going to really make us stand out even more to basically be a more like smart sending type company. That's interesting. Is it based on like past experience? Let's say, yep. and what do you get in terms of that data? Let's say, do you get stuff from their LinkedIn or maybe like stuff from the CRM? What do you populate? Yeah. So we typically know because we have like an ROI guarantee. We know if someone took a meeting or not. So we don't keep any of the data or like who the person was or who the like basically like what company was, but we keep title. So we go, Hey, this is a CMO. They took a meeting. So we use that when you're trying to target mm -hmm. somebody like what their title is and what we've seen people with that title in the past respond to. And so we use that data to basically recommend type things you can send to them. Mm -hmm. And can you give an example? Let's say I was like sending out to a CMO, like what would be a good gift? Yeah. So there's two layers to it. If you recommend a good gift for a CMO, and like a, a good example is like alumni type stuff. So we plug into Amazon so we can brand anything from Amazon, put in a custom box where you add a handwritten note to it. Alumni type sends like where you went to university have a super good response rate, especially right now because it's football season in the US and like everyone watches football games on Saturdays. And so it's a huge heartstring pull, get a meeting typically because like you're referencing their alma mater, especially into the big football school, like a University of Texas. So those work really well. But the bigger part that we put in we called it uh, pun pal and it was a content generator because then we just used chat gpt's api nothing crazy and like the goal there was we wanted to scrape their linkedin and actually recommend what you could write in the content with the gift because when you recommend a gift like that's great but your content might suck 
like it might not make any sense. And that even if the gift is good, if the content doesn't resonate, you're not going to get the meeting. So that system will generate not only the gift recommendation, but also the content that's in the email. And that's been cool to see that thing take off as a sealed reps that it'll recommend things to write in there. I think that it's the smartness of it right now is probably of like a junior level SDR, like someone who's part of the college. So it's not great yet, but at least like it gives a direction around like what you could write. So I think you know, those are really good. I personally think that a gift doesn't have to be really expensive to get a meeting. I think you could send a really killer written email with an e-gift attached to it and probably get the same response or the same meeting set rate as you could a really expensive gift with a really crappy content, personally. I think I lean towards less expensive ones. I love to send hats with handwritten notes. If you lose a deal, I love to send like handwritten notes. Like I do a ton of handwritten notes. I think it's a really cool, unique way to engage with people. Awesome. You mentioned like a good written email and what's your opinion maybe on like certain triggers? Because let's say when we do cold emails, but there's some clients where um, we also do gifting, like gift cards on top. And a yep. lot of what we do is, let's say, based on triggers. Let's say if someone like recently switched the position, maybe they're hiring for a certain role or they're using like a certain technology. Is that something you or uh, your clients also utilize on top of gifting? Yeah, absolutely. It's like the trigger moments of you took a new job or it's a Monday, I think is like a really good reason to send something. I recommend doing that for sure. Like having some reason why you're doing a send or like having that written in the email is important. I also think that if I get another cold email that's, hey, I hope this email finds you well, or however it starts, is not a good way to start an email. I think that you're better off to do send me a piece of content and have an e-gift attached to it. Be like, hey, check out this white paper. I thought it resonated with people that are in your space. And as you read it, have a coffee on me. Simple, to the point very layer cover for marketing emails. I could probably count on one hand how many times I've got an email like that. I think that those are so simple to do. And I don't know why more folks don't do it. Like the content, don't gate it. Give me a coffee. I read it and then follow up in a week and make sure I checked on it. Cause like now I feel some guilt. I need to get back to you. Those are very simple connections. I think that more folks should do rather than spend time like doing like cold messages that I think get probably zero clicks. Yeah. And I also uh, think maybe it's also the variety in a way, because you mentioned you like content. I know some people are more direct. Oh, I'll jump on the meeting. I feel like it's also about having multiple touch points and just seeing what works based on the person's personality. Because some people like to explore stuff more, like you said, going to the product. Maybe other people might enjoy the gift more. And then third, they might just be ready to jump on the meeting. I think it depends on probably guests sometimes too, as to, as to what generation you're selling. I think I know that if you're selling like a millennial, if you're selling like, you know, someone who's older, I I think you probably have a pretty good idea as to what they'll respond to. I'm a millennial, I was born in the you know, late eighties. And so because of that, as I've gotten more into positions of I'm actually the one buying software, the way I like to be sold is very different than someone who's in like their fifties and their sixties. I think that it's, it's changed. And I think reps need to take note of that as to like what their graduation year was of college and see probably that's how they want to work or maybe even location. Like maybe somebody in the Midwest or someone in the UK might be different than somebody in the States. Like I know e-gifts don't work well in the UK. 
It's something that like we don't see a ton of click through. It's almost like you're buying a meeting. So that's not a good reference there, which we know and we share because we've done a lot of sending across the world. So I think that's stuff that you just need to take note to that like the one kind of like recipe for each person or each quadrant of folks doesn't typically work. Mm -hmm. Is it is it is it better to send like 10 super good unique emails and set eight meetings out of it? Or is it better to send 10,000 and set those same eight meetings? That's a question, right? <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my other question. Yeah. What are your reps currently doing? Are you doing a lot of personalized emails? Are you also doing some mass sending or maybe something in between or a mix of all the free approaches? Yeah, it's somewhere between. I think so marketing does a lot of air cover with webinars with case studies, things like that. Like those would go to mass people, like trying to feel like who we can convert. Uh, the SDRs will do more personalized outreach that they have like a list of accounts and folks that they target. They'll do top down with like very personalized sends. They'll do bottom up with more PLG offers, getting folks to sign up and use it. So like they'll use both to try to get into like big enterprise level accounts. Trigger moments, as you mentioned, is a really big one for that team. Like we'll keep track of everything from like new job changes to promotions, things like that. We'll send cake and grats stuff a lot. So like that's a very big moment for us to set meetings. Events are really good. Even if you're not at events, I think like those are typically a really good way to get meetings. I find that like events are like not as busy as they used to be like pre-COVID, but I still think that events are a really good way to, even if folks don't attend, you can still do content around them try to get folks to like be like hey here's what you missed at the show they'll just show you what we were you know pushing at abc show so i think that's a good way to try to get meetings for folks too yeah it should be told one of our favorite approaches is we see like a linkedin event like ideally sell it if it's like from a competitor or something like that and then mm -hmm. you can grab the audience from there you can like just say that you're attending the event and then just pitch them right then and there and we've actually seen like a lot higher engagement versus if you're just cold e like cold emailing them from the blue yeah and i feel like it's because people like re relate to that event more so it's like they know you more versus all the blue yeah i think it's an awesome approach i think that like there, if there's a reason to reach out to somebody i think whatever the reason might be it, it's good to have i think that helps a ton for sure mm -hmm. and i guess you guys have been out here for a while how did you approach building out and developing your business what changed throughout the years yeah first started 2016 2015 that was a good time to build the company tech because like it was everything. It was like the heyday. So you could raise money and build things quickly. We have product market fit really early because folks were like, yes, I have a swag closet. Yes, I need to put it somewhere. Yes, I've never tracked gifting. The early days were more like taking orders. It wasn't a lot of selling. It was like we were just signing people. Like we would close like a handful of customers a day. So it was very fast and we had to scale up warehousing really quickly, scale up product really quickly. Our approach, because my co-founder and I are both salespeople, was sales first and engineering a product second, which is very backwards to a lot of companies. So we would basically ship stuff that wasn't totally done yet. We paid for it later, but I think that it was like, how many companies can we bring on as quickly as possible? So we did. When COVID hit in 2020, we got even busier because everyone went home and we went from closing probably three or four companies a day to probably eight or nine companies a day. It was like really fast and it was enterprise companies. Facebook was like, hey, all my employees are at home. Like I need to send them things. So basically, so they feel part of the culture here. So we began like the HR use case became massive and we inherited all this budget for events because folks are like, I have this event budget. 
I'm going to give it to you and I'll do virtual events. And so we became like a gifted component there. COVID for us was phenomenal because everyone was at home. It was shipping stuff out like crazy. And that is how we probably grew the fastest from, I think we were probably 50, 60 people going into COVID at the end of it. We were probably like 500 people. And so we were like, it, we were growing really wow. fast during that time, which was awesome. What shifted was like after COVID, it became how not burning money, but became profitable. And so that was the big shift, right? It's like how you get to that point. So we made corrections there like every other startup, which sucked because you, know, you say goodbye to your friends and like a layoff, like that stuff was not fun to do because we had to become profitable really quickly. And we had a lot of cash coming to the business, but we weren't being very conservative with like how we were spending the cash. So we corrected some of that and figured that out along the way. So today it's more not just tech, but manufacturing and finance, et cetera, which we probably should have done four years ago, five years ago. But that was a kind of a quick change for us, for sure. And then also now we have more competition because you want competition. You want to figure out like how you don't drive the price of your product to zero because everyone has backing and they want to get the deal, but you don't want to drive the SaaS feed to zero because that's how we all live. Yeah, so 50 to 500. And then I guess you guys have so many segments. You have the tech, you have the warehousing. How yep. did you guys like handle all those like moving parts? And I guess, what did you have to focus on when you were like scaling that much? Because I'm guessing like you had to do a lot of systems, a lot of like uh, yeah. team restructuring. So the software is like on the front end. So there's app is like such a small part of it. Cause like once you place the order, that order goes into like an OEM system like or manager system, which gets routed to the warehouse that we built too. So like all of that was a big process of kind of building the whole warehouse management system. That's another system. When we raised a, a bunch, you have your sales team, that was the engine, they were humming along. They were great. Then you had your entire warehouse org and the warehouse org was one that we hired a bunch of people from Amazon to help us figure that out. Cause like they were experts at it. And like we, without the Amazon folks, that would never worked. And like that went through some big changes because we had to keep like getting bigger warehouse locations, which was a big pain to figure out how to do that. So that was, we spent most of our time on the warehouse side for, especially during COVID because they were doing like thousands of orders an hour. How do you process that stuff? Then there was the digital side, which is like the e-gifts, which is like the direct sends, like bagels and flowers and Shopify plugins. So you want to make sure you have that built too. And then on top of that, we have a huge CX org because we're a very high touch product because you're talking to us a good amount. And we want to recommend gifts to you and we want to help you do more ordering of things. So our CX org is a big org still today who manages and helps every one of our customers figure out what to send, what to plug into. Now, there's a team that does send curation, meaning like they can buy new things for you. So that's a big team too. So my job here has always been to go to the team that needs the most help. And I was very busy during COVID trying to figure out what team that was. We were all stuck at home. So I feel like all we did was really work for three years. It was just a bunch of work. So just good. A lot of coffee and a lot of work and a lot of late nights. And then Pakistan was still pumping out code. And so they still are today. And so that was like later nights. So you'd have a big full day. I think that starting a company, as you know, most folks know, is making your own hours is just means you just work all hours, basically. And how did you manage that jumping from team to team? Let's say you jumped in a new team. What were the first things you would do to better understand what the process is right now and what needs to kind of change or be improved? Yeah, I'm very anti-process. I think process is like, I hate to have meetings and like the big meeting stuff. So like my goal is I always wanted to be able to do most of the things. So when I jump into a new team, <clears throat> it's like, what grunt work do you have that you need to get done? 
Could you need me to go through a spreadsheet and mark and clean up a CSV file because like, I need to do a send or whatever the grunt work is. Like I, I needed to be able to know how to do that. And it was important to our culture that anyone could jump in and do that. It didn't matter what your title was. If we needed to like pack boxes that day in the warehouse, we'd be running behind, fly to the warehouse and get that done. And that was very important so that, that we have that. It was like, it was anti-process. It was like, let's get the projects done and let's make sure that we get to where we need to get to. So when I would join a new team, I would spend most of my first couple months just doing that. What do we need to get cleaned up? What are there demos that need to be run? Are there cold emails that we need to send? I've done all that before. So let's do that stuff first. And then as I would spend time doing that, then it was okay, what process things can we get rid of? It was like, what are there people meeting for no reason? Are there silos? And there were so many silos throughout COVID because people weren't in the office. And so you get to figure out how to break that stuff down. And if you didn't understand what every person was doing, you couldn't really do that. And I think those are problems we still have today. There's teams that are just too siloed, that are on an island. And you basically have to break them down to be like, hey, what you're working on is important, but this other team over here is working on the exact same thing. So like, how can we connect you two? And like, how can everyone see you have good visibility across the company? And we still struggle with that. And I still admit that I think every company does for sure. Yeah, so pretty much like results first, ship it, and then think about the process. Yeah, and it doesn't matter who you are. Like, you, if you need to do some grunt work, do grunt work, get it done. Awesome. And I guess because you guys are working with so many sales teams right now, what would you recommend people to do, especially right now, let's say in this market for their cold outreach? Like, maybe give them like an example of a campaign they could try out with gifting, even. Yeah. There's a bunch of services that are out there where you can pull like e-gift codes. And I think that like one, you can use ours. Sure. But you can also like you use like starbucks.com and just take an e-gift code and type and put that into an email that you send and see if that changes your interaction. Send maybe 10 of them and see how it goes. That's one recommendation I would do. Another one is you could do handwritten notes. There's a bunch of services that do handwritten notes. We do as well. And try to send my favorite one is if like, it's a very cold prospect, like try starting and send a handwritten note first and see how that goes. I think that's a cool one. You can do Amazon sends very easily as well. Like you can just go to Amazon and just send it to them. I think that like, testing that out and seeing like what your reaction is something that I think is pretty cool for folks to give a shot to see like how gifting can be incorporated into their outreach. Other than that, I would say, I think one of my favorite campaigns a, a rep here does, they have a day, like a demo day, like on Tuesday, they're like, Hey, if you're not sure about our product, I have a you know group demo. No, you can't see each other. I just talk for half an hour to like people, Hey, here's my product. And I'll send you a lunch before I join it. I'll walk you the system. And then if you want a more personalized demo, we can do that. And so he has like a handful of folks every week that joins that are just people like, and they, they could be anybody from like SDRs to you name it. And they want to see the system. And I, I like that approach because it's almost like a, Hey, and take a look. If you want more personalized, we can go from there. It's like a, almost like a gateway, if you will. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I'd, I'd recommend. And I guess you guys give your reps a budget of how many gifts or how many lunches they can buy. Yeah. They have a monthly budget. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. And I guess going back to the business, what have been like some of the most significant challenges you guys have faced? Because you talked a lot about the ups, I guess a bit of the downs, but what were the moments where you damn, are we going to make it? Yeah, for sure. I think that early days you roll out and you always have the kind of thought in the back of your mind where you're like, I can't believe they're actually buying us. Like this idea that we have, they're actually giving us money to make this work. So that's always the thought you have in the back of your mind. 
warehousing was really hard. Like when we moved warehousing, we lost inventory. We would lose orders. That was you know, every year we have some sort of change to warehousing, which has been every year. Like we lost customers over not being able to send things out or find stuff. And so I think that we learned a lot from that. We learned a lot from like how to do warehouse changes, how to do like skewing of inventory. Cause like we were naive at warehouse and we walked into it being like, oh, yes, throw stuff on the shelf. And like when you need to send it, you could throw it in a box. I don't think we realized like the volume of stuff we would receive. We also signed up enterprise customers far before we should have. Like we had stuff showing up at our warehouse, semi trucks filled with things, and we have space for it. So I think we learned like as cool as it was to get a big enterprise logo, you gotta need to be ready for it. And we were not, but we figured it out. But I think that was uh, a big learning. And lastly, it was people. I would say like probably the hardest job of starting a company is the folks that you work with because you come across amazing people that you work with. And when you have to do like a layoff, that's the worst thing ever. All you want to do is help them find another job. And so that was probably like the lowest of the low is having people that worked with you for a while being like, hey, we can't afford you anymore. That was a big change across all tech. And I think that like to do it respectfully and to help them find another job was the only way we could approach it. But that was definitely probably like the, the lowest of the lows for sure. All that kind of comes with the job, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, of course. It's just part of the entrepreneur journey. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. And I guess speaking about people, what are some of the things that I guess you look for the talent that you guys are hiring right now? I love people that are like hacky. And I, I think no matter what, you're going to hire the wrong people at some point. And you got to be fast and be like, hey, you're not a good fit for us. But the big thing is like people that have had a hacky past, have started a company in college or have you know, been with a startup before that didn't go well. Like those tend to be the best ones. I think the biggest thing with if, if sales, if someone like is, oh man, I really wish I had a case study on X or I really wish I had a referral that I could introduce to this prospect. I think that the sales rep that doesn't wait to make their own referral network are the best ones. The ones that they sell somebody like that person remains a friend to them and that's who they're using for referrals. Like those are the best folks to work with because they just do it themselves. Or like the reps that like just do it and then ask for forgiveness are my favorite ones. They're like, hey, I sold that deal for this. You're like, oh, that's lower than you're supposed to go. But I got the deal done and they're going to send a lot. I know it's like not the best way to think about it, but that's the stuff I love the most are the ones that kind of just get the deal done or move forward. And then they're like, hey, here's what it is. Do we want to move forward with it or do we not? I ask them for forgiveness, not for permission. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree to that. Like actually even our director of sales, he, he had his own company before. I think it was like a window cleaning business and he's awesome. And we're trying to find the same type of people. I feel like everyone who's tried to run a company at some point, like before or later, like they're always good fit. And even I, before I started this, I was doing drop shipping. So yeah, I feel like that's always like a good sign. And I think that there should be argument there too, right? The sales team should not get along with the finance team. I think like the finance team is always going to want them to go higher. Yeah. They're always going to want them. And I think that marketing and sales should also be like this too. I think that disagreement is a good thing. If everyone's like agreeing with one another, then I think you got a problem. Yeah, definitely. Different personalities. Yeah, it, it, different drivers. Right? If finance is like, hey, that deals out of guidelines, then sales can be like, well, you hop on the phone call. Let them know that it's out of guidelines. They don't care. They want to do sending. So I think like those disagreements are good. And I, like that's what you need I think, across the company to advance. Yeah. And I guess speaking about the different teams, like how do you guys also align them? Because I know 
a big thing that we're seeing is like uh, misalignment between sales and marketing activities. So sales and marketing are probably like they need to be best friends, but also friends that argue. SDR is like rule under marketing. AEs and AMs. AEs rule under kind of like the sales side, and then CX handles all AMs and all CX. So basically, like those are three heads report to the head of go to markets. That's been a good lineup. Other than that, product engineering are led by the same person too. So that's like another one. Each scrum team has a leader for each one. We spend a lot of time where the leaders, like the second tier folks, everyone who's like a director or VP, we spend a lot of time on like directional type calls too. It's like, hey, here's what the roadmap is. Here's what the plan is. And that helps trickle down to each person that we do, I think on a monthly basis right now. It's really on awesome. four teams. Yeah. Cool. And I guess as a final question, what advice would you give to people that are just starting out their own B2B SaaS? I think biggest one for me is partnerships. So don't build something on your own. Spend a lot of time. There's this company called Engageo. Now it's like demand base. And when we were starting the company, they were a great partner for us. And we would spend every day in their office. And so I think that sales would close the deal there because they were way bigger than us. I think we were like two people. Spend time with partners or folks that are you know, trying to tackle the same use case you are. And I think that is the most beneficial. Another one is most people will offer advice, even if they're competitors. So we touch them on LinkedIn, be like, hey, I'm trying to build this. You've had success here. Where you want to offer me advice? I think that stuff like that tends to work really well as well because most entrepreneurs love to give advice. Yeah, so it's interesting. You're the first person to mention, by the way, like partnerships as like a thing they should be focusing on. Oh yeah, that's the first one. That's where they should live. But Cool. And and then have fun with it. Awesome. Cool. cool. Yeah. Thanks for joining in. Yeah. Thank you for the time. Talk to you later. Thanks, man.